Across Africa, the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Associations podcast. In this series, industry leaders will share their views on the investment landscape in Africa and will discuss latest trends covering fundraising, deal-making, value creation and exits across private equity, credit and venture capital. In this episode, we hear from the legal experts from AFCA's Legal and Regulatory Committee as they examine the legal measures needed to ensure the preservation of current investments amid the COVID-19 crisis. Geoffrey Burgess, partner at TV Voice and Plintom, Pierre-Yves Denes, senior legal counsel at BPI France, Folake Elias Aleowale, partner at Udo Udoma and Belosagi, Mark Kendalyn Davis, chief legal officer at CDC Group, Roddy McKean, director at Andiawan and Kana, Rafik Emsa, Chief Legal Officer at African Invest, Olasadio Lusangia, Partner and Head of Corporate Commercial at Jackson Etienne Edu, and Cindy Valentine, Partner at Simmons and Simmons. This recording is part of AFCA's Uniting Against the Impacts of COVID-19 series, launched in April 2020. My name is Jeff Burgess. I'm an M&A partner at Double Boys of Plimpton. Hope everybody is safe and well today. When the Legal and Regulatory Committee was preparing for today's webinar. We wanted to look at what our clients were doing. We wanted to answer questions that we think the AFCA community may have about the legal ramifications of the crisis that we're in. And we wanted to also focus on how this crisis is affecting the legal world differently than it is in OECD countries. The frontier markets for private equity in Africa have have been affected differently and will be for reasons that we'll get into. Although at the end of the day, a lot of the legal issues are the same that people are facing around the world. On the health side of things, uh, Africa has only had 15,000 cases across the whole continent and less than 1,000 deaths, which, which is extraordinary compared with other parts of the world. The, the uh, method of containment of the crisis is gonna be probably the, the biggest uh, point of focus in the near term. Although that's difficult because in areas of extreme poverty, it's harder for people to stay truly isolated. So far, there haven't been widespread outbreaks, but if there are, the health sector has less infrastructure to deal with people who are sick and has less uh, industry, local industry, to ramp up production like of things like ventilators, which uh, China, the U.S., and, and parts of the EU have done. And once vaccines become available, which we hope for soon, distribution is going to be a little bit more of a challenge. But the economic effects and the fiscal flexibility that governments have to address the pandemic are also different. Foreign exchange has been affected heavily, and we're in the middle of a uh, separate but connected oil and commodities uh, price war, where there's been a lot of volatility there that's affecting businesses in Africa. And of course, governments have uh, less financial means to help businesses. And in some countries where tax compliance is low, the, uh, the ability to collect less tax is something that's not really in the toolkit in the same way it is in other places. So from here, I'll hand it over to Cindy to finish our introduction. Thanks very much, Jeff, and welcome everybody. Uh, we've decided to split this panel into uh, three, four main sections today. First of all, we're going to be discussing um, legalities as they pertain to fund matters. Then we're going to look at transactional issues and then operational issues. Obviously, just to stress, this is, uh, this is a general discussion and not, not any form of legal advice. Um, we're going to end off the session by having a question and answer session. So please do feed questions through uh, as the speakers are talking, and then we'll have 10 minutes to address those at the end. Um, thanks very much to all our panelists on the, the on the fund side. We've got uh, Mark Kendadan Davies from CDC, uh, Pierre uh, Pierre Denez from BPI, and myself from Simmons and Simmons. Then talking on uh, transactional issues, we've got um, Rafiq Mazar from African Invest, Jeff from Deva Boys, and Salaki from UUBO. Uh, and then on the operational, we've got uh, Roddy McKean from Anjawala and Cam, and Kolosali uh, uh, Olufanya from uh, Jackson, Etienne, Eddy. So um, without further ado, um, we're going to start off discussing um, impact on fund matters. Uh, three core areas we're going to look at, the first being liquidity, the second LPD fault, and the third uh, ESG and business integrity. 
Now, obviously, the, one of the main concerns around liquidity is the ability of LPs to um, be able to have sufficient liquidity to honour their commitments. Um, PAE, can you perhaps just talk, us, um, talk to us a bit about other major concerns and around that? Yeah, um, presumably uh, there is currently a high, high question on the, the GP side whether LPs will be uh, able to uh, fund any uh, capital call in the future, and presumably this will be also depending on uh, the maturity of the underlying fund that we are talking about. Uh, First-time fund uh, may uh, face some more difficulties in, in that sense than uh, very old uh, teams managing several funds. Uh, there might be some uh, vision on the LP side that uh, distribution will uh, decrease uh, because of uh, the, the current crisis, and, and therefore the position may uh, be uh, quite defensive on, on the GP side and uh, try to, to, to call uh, to call down uh, a lot of cash to, to, to be able uh, to make any uh, add-on or uh, to protect their portfolio or conduct new investment opportunities. Um, so there is a big, big, uh, big question uh, about that. Probably on the EFI side, the question of liquidity is not uh, really uh, a question, uh, but presumably it's more uh, applicable to other uh, LPs that are financing uh, funds in, in Africa that may uh, have several uh, issues on their side. Uh, will the financing uh, of the funds be affected? Maybe, uh, and, and this uh, will also uh, raise a question of liquidity for LPs, meaning by this that if banks are not able to finance, for example, uh, bridge financing, then uh, additional financing will be required from uh, LPs. Thanks, and I think also um, there was just a Fund Finance Association, Association paper released uh, late last week. Um, which, which sort of uh, confirmed our view that as, as of now, banks are, are not withholding on financing or there's no particular pressure on providing financing. Um, it seems to be that for the moment things are, are continuing as normal, well, not quite as normal. Um, Mark, can you um, perhaps just highlight a few of the um, potential solutions that GPs can look at if they are struggling for liquidity? Sure, thank you. Um... Look, the most important thing I think for GPs to do is to talk to their LPs and talk to them fast. Um, look, I represent CDC Group PLC. We have a significant portfolio of fund investments in uh, Africa. Uh, we and uh, our European DFI brethren uh, have created a task force. Uh, the purpose of that task force is to seek a coordinated approach to liquidity issues in our funds portfolio. Now, it's early days yet, but the LPs are considering whether and when it might be appropriate to vary or waive terms in fund agreements. Now, why would we think about doing that? Well, we may think about doing it to permit additional reinvestment through amended recycling provisions, uh, to reduce restrictions on follow-on investments, to revisit diversification limits, or perhaps to permit a broader use of funds, for example, a fund providing short-term liquidity facilities to portfolio companies, for example. Now, the liquidity solutions must be GP-led. After all, it's GP's fund agreements that are going to need changing or varying. No one size ever fits all. Everything will be reviewed predictably on a case-by-case -case basis. But I think there is a willingness to at least think about uh, this. Uh, folks are working on it at the moment. Uh, so uh, if GPs find themselves in a position where they are considering liquidity issues they, and they have DFI LPs invested in their funds, they really should come along and talk to us. So I'll return to other DFI initiatives a little later on in this webinar. So at this point, I hand back to Pierre Eves 
to speak about capital call activity. Thank you, Mark. Uh, as you've rightly pointed out, um, what we uh, are as uh, LP uh, taking care of is, is really the communication and trying to understand uh, what kind of uh, additional capital call uh, the GP may require to make. Is it uh, for defensive purposes, i.e. Uh, to uh, carry out foreign investment? Is it uh, to make uh, new uh, investments because there, are, there, there might be new uh, opportunities? Is it for uh, other purposes? And that, that's a question of uh, transparency and discussion uh, between uh, the GP uh, and its LPs. And I think it's very important for uh, the GP to explain what is uh, his its current position in connection with its portfolio uh, and, and, and whether they uh, need, uh, for example, to accelerate uh, their uh, capital call in order to uh, provide uh, additional uh, financing to uh, specific portfolio sectors or uh, if they, uh, for example, anticipate uh, some other situation that may require in the near future, uh, new or additional uh, capital call. And, and I think there's been a, a number of surveys being released recently where, um, where it's been looked at whether in fact there has been a rush on, on capital calls. This doesn't seem to be, um, seem to be the, the issue. Um, so, so that's, that's um, so, yeah. Anyway, our, our next point to consider, um, and Mark, perhaps you can chip in here because um, it, it's around DFI initiatives. Can you just let us know what DFIs are looking at in terms of um, initiatives to support GPs and portfolio companies? Yeah, of course. Look, um, as I said earlier on, it's early days yet. We all feel as though we've been living through this pandemic for a while yet, but in terms of um, the speed with which um, it, uh, institutions can talk to one another and come up with sh uh, shared approaches. It all takes a little time. However, um, DFIs and MFIs uh, are certainly talking to one another. Um, I mentioned the task force a little earlier, and some DFIs have already, already launched COVID impact initiatives. Um, you can go to their websites and you can see what they are. So for example, um, we've launched a couple We've created a COVID-19 business response facility that'll provide grants and advisory to businesses uh, so they can adapt and scale up as part of their pandemic response. Um, we can um, provide amounts of up to £160,000 to do that. We've also created an emergency technical assistance facility, which will help smaller portfolio companies expects, uh, access expertise, advice and capacity building. Um, we are one of the questions that we're being asked is whether we provide debt funding to portfolio companies of our funds for very specific reasons. Uh, the, the, we're still working that out at the moment. Uh, there are obviously conflicts to think through there, but uh, we might, and other DFIs might, I believe, uh, so long as that investment would have a direct impact on the pandemic. Um, and that's as far as our thinking has gone at the moment. Uh, we, I think, and other DFIs are looking at our portfolios. We're seeking to be as helpful as we can with our GPs. We're talking, talking, talking. Uh, we, they're contacting us regularly, and we are thinking about uh, how we can uh, make use of our balance sheets to assist in a sort of practical, pragmatic way. Uh, the one thing that's difficult at the moment, though, is to make new investments with folks that we don't know very well. It's extremely difficult to do the sort of due diligence that DFIs are required to do in the current environment. We simply can't travel to see people. We simply can't uh, visit sites. That makes it very difficult to do new investments. Thanks, Mark. I think a lot of people are very interested to, to have that insight. Um, just to quickly uh, just make a point on liquidity uh, of portfolio companies, that's going to look, be looked at in a lot more detail under the transaction uh, panel. Um, but I think one of the key questions around um, valuations, uh, there doesn't seem to be a consensus yet. Um, 
obviously, I think the preference is to avoid any strong movement in valuations. So the, the, a pragmatic, smoother approach um, with, with the impact likely later in the year seems to be um, how, how people are, are considering. Um, the one other point to note is um, that um, obviously this, this is going to have knock-on longer-term effects for funds coming towards the end of their investment period, their fund life, um, and which will lead to a certain amount of, of restructuring. Just moving on to the, the second part of our panel, uh, we just wanted to discuss LPD faults, which is obviously a, a topic that people are very interested in. There are, there's three key solutions that, that are generally incorporated in the LPA. Um, being forfeiture, a forced transfer, or specific performance. Um, so obviously a, a forfeiture means that um, the LP forfeits its interest, uh, the fund size is reduced. Um, it's not anyone's ideal solution. Uh, fund size reduced means generally means management fee reduced, um, and it also means an increased concentration for investors in that fund. Um, a forced transfer, the default provisions ordinarily allow for a power of attorney to allow the GP to force their transfer to another party. Um, and then thirdly, for specific performance, a GP could take action um, and enforce uh, performance. Um, none of these alone are ideal solutions. Um, and I think having dealt with LPD faults in the past, it's, it's something that is in fact that is actually dealt with on a pragmatic basis. Um, nobody wants to go for the nuclear option. Um, it's just dealing with it and making sure the best solution is obtained. Now, in obtaining the best solution, one of the key things is GP discretion. Um, on the one hand, the GP tries to maintain the maximum discretion. On the other hand, LPs want to ensure um, that they have some insight um, into how that discretion is exercised or, um, or, or how they could temper it. Um, one, one thing that's been raised is perhaps um, issues around default should be considered um, at the LPAC. Um, another point to note is that LPs have often, um, in LPAs, negotiated um, restraints. So, for example, an LP's biggest concern, if there is a default, um, is that, that somebody has to stump up for that default. So, um, that the default is uh, ordinarily, the investor would ordinarily be limited to only paying a certain amount, maybe 25 to 50 percent of that initial um, of the initial amount that they were drawn down on um, when the default occurred, um, and also they would um, not want to be liable for any abort costs associated um, with that default. Um, Pierre, can you maybe just um, give us a bit more colour and context um, on your your view around the concerns and practicalities um, about default? Yeah, as you rightly pointed out, there is on the LP side uh, some fear uh, that when other LPs are defaulting, uh, you, you need to be aware of the consequences, i.e., the requirement for you to make uh, to to cover the the, the defaulting uh, uh, the defaulting LP uh, and therefore the amounts that will not be uh, put. Uh, on the table uh, by, by those defaulting LPs. However, I, I mean, compared to the past, uh, presumably we are in a situation where these defaults may be uh, only temporary. Uh, and then what we have seen is uh, trying to find out a uh, discussion with the GP and other LPs, some uh, alternative uh, solution, not necessarily uh, specified in the documentation, but that could help. Uh, to face uh, these uh, temporary uh, situation uh, and the potential uh, recovery of uh, those defaulting LPs uh, to uh, to pay uh, their amount in the future. And so we, we, we have tried to uh, discuss with uh, those LPs and the GP uh, the solution like uh, increasing uh, the financing of the fund or uh, in increasing uh, the recycling of distribution in order to avoid uh, uh, the necessity to uh, carry a, to, to make some additional capital calls uh, and therefore to uh, put the defaulting LP uh, in, in the poor or bad situation. Thanks very much, Dear Eve. 
Um, we've just got a couple of minutes left. Um, Mark, could you um, just perhaps give us a bit of colour colour and context um, in regard to ESG compliance? Obviously, the concern is that um, the economic disruption may may lead to um, a shift um, in the the extent to which um, compliance and um, integrity is adhered to. Yeah, look, put simply, compliance with the ENS and BI standards that GPs have signed up to by the GP and by the portfolio companies of the GP's fund is so important to LPs, particularly DFI LPs. There should be no cutting of corners at times of stress. I mean, integrity risks tend to heighten as a result of a pandemic increasing the likelihood that some portfolio companies might be tempted to take greater risks, might shortcut procedural safeguards, and might try to circumvent controls. We expect GPs to continue to resource their ENS and BAI teams properly to comply with the policies they have in place. And, and this is an internal control for GPs. Uh, they might have to move very quickly, uh, expedited decision-making, um, as a result of what's going on in their portfolios, make sure they've got the right governance processes in place for expedited decision making. You know, if GPs let their standards down, there could be significant financial losses, regulatory action, God forbid litigation, and always reputational damage. It simply isn't worth it. You've just, all GPs uh, need to be very focused on their BI and the ENS obligations at this time. Um, that's a plea. Um, it's in all our interests uh, for that to be the case. Thank you. Great. Thank, thanks very much, Mark. Um, we're just going to move on to our next section on uh, transactional issues now. Yes, thank you, uh, Sandy. Thank you all. Um, so my name is Rafiq Mzah. I'm a Chief Legal Officer of Africa Invest. And for this part, uh, we will discuss M&A transactions and the impact of the current crisis on, on the current and ongoing M&A transactions. Because as you know, most of us uh, had transactions uh, that either had signed uh, before uh, the, the crisis or that were, were about to sign uh, and were in negoti negotiation process. So as far as I'm concerned, I will discuss uh, on the topic of uh, deals that have been signed but not closed yet. So, uh, and in the second step, my, my colleague Plake will discuss on, on deals that have not signed yet and what would be the takeaways and lessons uh, that we could use for, for those of you who have, who have not yet uh, signed their transactions. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, I will tackle the issue and the difficult issue of deals that have uh, and SPAs and, and transactions that, that were signed before uh, the, the, uh, the crisis, but for whom the closing have not yet taken place. And this raises a lot of questions. First, uh, the first question is whether you are a buyer or a seller. Obviously, it will not be the same uh, analysis because usually as a, as a seller, uh, you want the deal to be closed as soon as possible to get your cash uh, out of the transaction to distribute it to your LPs. So we will have an incentive to finalize and close uh, as soon as possible. We have a hurdle rate, you have your IRR, that you, you owe to your LP, so it's very important to close as soon as possible. Uh, when you are a buyer, on, on the other hand, it's, uh, it's another topic because uh, the, the valuation today could be radically different from what it was like one month ago. We, it, it's like the world has changed today. So we see some of the GPs going, even going back to their investment committees and one of the recommendations that uh, that my colleague Fulaik, I think, will, will make for, for deals who have not signed yet is at least to consult your ICs uh, before, uh, before signing new transactions if the IC had already approved but, uh, but not yet signed. So it, it would be safe today to say that uh, the world has changed and, and going back to the IC uh, is a natural uh, reflex that you should, you should all have. Uh, the second uh, important uh, point uh, and on the contractual side is what are the questions that you need to ask yourself uh, if you, had, you have signed uh, an SPA and you are about to close? I think you have four major questions that you need to ask yourself. Uh, first is, do I have a, a MAC clause in, in my agreement? Second is, what is the law governing my agreement? Because this will, the analysis might be uh, different. 
third uh, is uh, what are the CPs that I have, and uh, especially the regulatory CPs today are a great challenge. And fourth, uh, are the reps and warranties, the issue of the representation and warranties, especially if you have a clause that says that your representation warranties need to be repeated at closing, and this is a, a major also challenge that you need to look at closely. So I'll go quickly, I know that the, the time is running, but first for the MAC clause, uh, usually in, in all the agreements, there's a MAC clause that says that if there's a material adverse event between signing and closing, while well, the closing does not happen, uh, you need to make sure that there is one. Sometimes people do not uh, put it in the negotiation. Sometimes it's only for the benefit of the buyer and not for all the parties. So you need to, to, to look at this very carefully. And you also need to look at the definition of a MAC. Because uh, today, uh, COVID-19, even if it, if it has a, a huge impact, um, it's likely to have a huge impact. But is the impact actually real today for, for your case and for your uh, company that you're buying? Or is it still uh, to crystallize? And the impact, uh, we know all of us that the impact will be for, for the end of the year and, and, and after the lockdown. So is the impact today? Uh, crystallized and materialized. So uh, this is a, an important question to see. What we saw is uh, for, for SPAs who have a very detailed uh, MAC uh, clauses, it's much more protected. For example, if you have a, a MAC clause on, on the EBITDA, for example, of the company that says that, you know, it's considered as a, as a MAC, the fact that the EBITDA of the company uh, has uh, decreased by 10% from budget or by 15% from budget. This is a much more protective definition that, that could help in, 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 the, uh, uh, in, in the analysis of your MAC clause. Um, so this is for the MAC. Uh, second question that you ask yourself is, what's the law governing my agreement? Uh, for, from our perspective, we have two main uh, laws governing uh, our agreements, either French law, either French law or English law. And the analysis is completely different because for French law agreements, if you don't have a, a force majeure clause in your agreement, if you don't have a contractual uh, force majeure clause, well, the law actually has uh, a force majeure definition. And even if you don't have a contractual uh, option uh, to, to use a force majeure, you can go to the law and the, the French Civil Code is, is very uh, detailed about what is a force majeure. You need to fulfill three conditions of unforeseeability, of uh, uh, the, 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 the event needs to be beyond your control, the events need to be uh, impossible, makes impossible for you to apply the agreement. So you have a, a huge uh, analysis and definition of, uh, of force majeure. Uh, even a second concept that is uh, less difficult to uh, the, where the threshold is, is lower, which is the hardship clause under French law, the imprévision, which allows you to negotiate your agreement uh, by going to the judge. The, the judge, if there is a, an unforeseeable event that makes the agreement not impossible to uh, implement, but uh, onerous, much more onerous to implement. So it's, it's a lower threshold than force majeure. The French law uh, allows, even though it's not in, in the agreement. So uh, you, the lesson and the takeaway is, you, if you have French law for your SPA, you need to be very careful because it's much easier to apply a, a MAC or a force majeure event. And um, one other takeaway is that you can waive actually those hardship and force majeure rights contractually. So in, if you are, for example, a seller and you want to make sure that the, the buyer does not take benefit of those force majeure and, and hardship clauses, it's possible for you to waive it in your contract. For English law, it's much more uh, complicated and difficult, let's say, to raise uh, a, a force majeure if it's not in your contract. So you need to make sure that there is a force majeure clause uh, in, uh, in your uh, English law governance SPA. Uh, obviously, these are uh, main highlights. Uh, the third question that you need to ask yourself on, on your SPA that have been signed is the date of your agreement. When was my agreement signed? Because as you know, the COVID-19 was declared a pandemic by the uh, WHO on March 11th, 2020. So it would be uh, drastically different if you signed your SPA on March 10th or on March 12th. So if you signed before this um, 
pandemic uh, declaration by WHO, you uh, you could have argument to say that it was unforeseeable, or at least uh, that you've been in a stronger position to implement a forced measure. For deals and transactions who signed after March 11th, or even after the national lockdowns, one could say that it's very complicated for uh, for a party to raise uh, the force majeure event because it knew about it and it, the consequences started to be evident for the for the world. So uh, also the the, di the date of signature is is very important and obviously for the deals who have not signed yet for the future deals as will uh, be detailed by my colleague Folake, it's much more diff diff uh, different and, and difficult to raise the force majeure. Maybe a couple of words to finish and on the reps and warranties and the other CPs. Um, on the CPs, you need to be very careful on the fulfillment of the CPs because, in, in, for example, for antitrust conditions, when you need to have the, the antitrust or any other regulatory uh, approvals for regulated uh, sectors, sometimes in your national regime, the law says that uh, after a certain period of time, there's a tacit approval that is given if there's no answer by the governments. And today we know that there's a shutdown and many administrations are closed. So the question is whether uh, the, the failure of any government authority to answer can still be considered as a tacit approval. And we know that in African countries, some, some, some laws have been general to suspend uh, the, these delays, but others are, are, are not clear and are silent. So today there is a, a real challenge to uh, to, to understand and to know whether this tacit approval can can indeed be uh, be, uh, be enforced and obtained. And a law firm should they have a challenge to to give their you know their opinion, legal opinions for closing transactions to say that all the regulatory approvals have indeed been uh, been obtained. I will um, I will stop there, and uh, maybe we can uh, we can go now to Folakis part on the deals for Thanks, Rafik. Um, so picking up from um, where you've left off, I'm going to be speaking about um, legal considerations in the context of new transactions, transactions that have not yet been signed. So I'll be looking at issues that buyers, sellers, and target companies may, be, um, may need to consider before signing their transaction documents and in, in carrying out due diligence. Now, we, we have a very um, unique um, challenge, shall I say, in, in, as, as in Nigeria and in many African countries, which is that you're not generally able to carry out external or third-party checks remotely. Um, for instance, even if you wanted to review or to verify corporate records at the company's registry, that it's usually done physically or manually. So that cannot be done while there is lockdown um, as a result of the measures implemented by government to mitigate the impact of COVID-19. So I'm beginning with practical considerations. Um, a VDR, a virtual data room, may help to preserve the continuity of the process, but there will be there will still remain the kind of challenges that I've just flagged with carrying out, um, you know, carrying out checks. Um, if they're required to be on-site due diligence, meet meetings with management, um, if there's any technical due diligence that requires travel or physical inspections on-site, on obviously all of those are going to be impacted by the um, ongoing restrictions following our presidential and state directives, for instance, in Nigeria. You need to consider, do you, uh, is it going to be necessary um, to reconsider your timelines in terms of your, of your timeline for carrying out the transaction? This is very much a time where there has to be flexibility and the parties have to very carefully consider whether they're going to be happy to proceed on the basis of perhaps information in a virtual due diligence data room um, in the short term, and whether then when the lockdown is lifted, there'll be some form of confirmatory due diligence that'll be carried out, or whether they're happy to just rely on transactional protection. Um, that, that, well, those will be issues that 
need to be considered. Another challenge in the context of due diligence is the scope. Um, it is very much a case, uh, as we all know, that due diligence is likely to be more exhausted. Um, there will be additional issues to consider that arise because of um, COVID-19. Um, I've already mentioned in relation to corporate information, the kind of um, issues that will arise with carrying out checks at the company's registry, for instance. There'll be similar issues if you're in investing in a target that operates in a regulated sector and where you want to make, um, you want to make verifications or to ask questions from the regulator regarding their compliance and so on. For instance, if, if that company operates in the oil and gas sector, that might be an issue. Um, similarly, you want to make sure that the boards and shareholders are able to carry out meetings even to enter into the transaction to start with. You might need to check constitutional documents to see whether they allow for virtual meetings to be held. Um, if the constitutional documents do not allow for virtual meetings to be held, then it might be the, in, that might create a challenge that delays the progression of the transaction, particularly for corporate consent. You need to ensure that um, transaction parties such as advisors and others that are perhaps generating technical plans, business plans, accounts information are going to be readily available. Um, you may want to check whether in relation to regulatory information, you will want to check usually when you're going for merger control approval, if there's a sector regulator, you're required to obtain the approval of the sector regulator. Most of them are out of commission as is our federal competition, consumer and, Com competition and consumer protection commission. Um, so that will impact on the timelines for the transaction. You need to check whether the company has, from a regulatory perspective, properly implemented um, the measures that are prescribed either by its own internal policies or by external regulatory policies in relation to handling the, a, a pandemic outbreak. In relation to employees, has it dealt with its employees properly from a health and safety perspective, from a sectoral perspective. Um, you, will, you, may, you may also want to find out whether it is up to date in making its remittances to the um, state inland revenue authorities in relation to personal income tax for the employees. There are measures that have been implemented in Nigeria, for instance, um, that offer up to a 50% tax rebate on uh, the remitted amounts that are paid to the state inland revenue services for employers who retain their employees between the 1st of March 2020 and the end of um, 31st of December 2020. Um, so th there are various issues that need to be considered in the context of due diligence and you, the, the, the transaction parties do need to figure out what they do about timelines, whether due diligence is to be deferred, um, and generally how to handle the logistical and operational challenges that may arise. Now, in terms of actual provisions in key transaction documents, like your share purchase agreements, for instance, obviously this issue has been touched on already, um, but pricing, valuation, consideration are all going to become very um, they're likely to be very heavily negotiated. Buyers will obviously want to rely on valuations that are as close to possible um, to completion. Sellers may be pushing to, for valuations that are based on historical performance or, or historical performance or more sort of certain factors up front. Um, parties may need to consider whether they want to, um, buyers, for instance, may want to impose ceilings on valuation. Um, they may want to tie valuation to specific KPIs. There may be a need to negotiate whether to retain or defer consideration pending, um, you know, until just before completion or based on post-completion KPIs. Um, 
in relation to CPs, there will be a need to ensure that you're setting realistic timelines for corporate contractual regulatory approvals. In relation to regulatory approvals, we've already mentioned the kind of issues that might arise that might cause a delay in the satisfaction of CPs. Corporate approvals are challenging because board and shareholder resolutions, depending on the size of the company, may not be possible. The Nigerian Stock Exchange has recently published guidelines for carrying out virtual meetings where constitutional documents allow, but those are meetings for the board management and board committees um, that are provided for in that publication. You, there might be a need to consider what sorts of provisions you include for extensions, for long stop dates, and, and similar provisions under the deal agreement. Reps and warranties, I, um, Rafiq has already touched on these. They're likely to be more closely, um, they're likely to be more closely negotiated. Um, buyers may are likely to require that reps and warranties, first of all, a, a, a wider number of reps and warranties, and then the, the need for further confirmation before completion so that they can reduce any sort of exposure to valuation risk. For instance, um, sellers would of course want to, or are likely to want to exclude or to limit liability for COVID risk. And the, the, these are the two considerations that will need to be agreed by parties. A particular area where there might be a challenge are the operating covenants between signing and closing a transaction. Um, there's a risk of rapid changes occurring in this period as a result of, uh, as by reason of the COVID-19 outbreak. And seller, while sellers may be preoccupied with um, operational steps that are being taken to address the, the impact of COVID-19, buyers may be considering how those changes or the steps that are being taken by the set, by the seller are going to impact on pricing and valuation. Um, both will, I, I think the, the, the term ordinary course of business may become very heavily negotiated. There might be a need to more carefully define expressly in the agreement what is meant by that in the context of operating covenants between signing and closing. Um, you, there's also the issue of access rights during that period between signing and closing and governance issues. It is likely that buyers will be more closely monitoring the company and its performance during that period. Um, Rafiq has already spoken, he's touched on MAX and MAEs and they will definitely be center stage in negotiation for new transactions. Um, the buyer will obviously be seeking to, um, will be seeking maps that are as comprehensive and wide as possible to cover any risk of exposure to um, COVID issues. The sellers may be pushing to restrict um, the scope of max clauses to um, items that are easy to measure. By that, I mean to events that are materially and measurably disruptive um, uh, that are significant and specific to the target business. Um, they may want to link it, link it as um, Rafik has touched on to a bit that it may be linked to market performance. The, the parties may need to negotiate materiality thresholds for the triggering of a map and there are other KPIs that may be brought into play. Um, I think the final point would just be in relation to merger control again, and that needs to be carefully considered because in this period there will be delays where you're acquiring control of the target. Um, but other than that, I think Jeff is going to speak next about the sort of financing issues um, that may need to be further considered by buyers and sellers in the context of transaction agreements. Yes? Uh, thank you, Falake. Um, I'll actually keep this relatively brief. Uh, 
because we're coming up to the end of the hour and we need to do the operational panel as well. The financing issues that um, AFCA members have raised in the survey that was conducted a week or two ago are fairly wide ranging and it seemed uh, that most of the questions related to issues that have arisen in drawn facilities that sponsors have within their portfolio. There's a wide range of financing facilities that are out there right now uh, in, in the PE world, some at the fund level, there's some investments that are structured as debt even though they're convertible. Um, but but just, just thinking at the, the portfolio level and, and the, the sort of three points that I wanted to make in summary are, um, you know, first of all, there's very good news that lenders generally seem to be working pretty closely with private equity owned investments. So defaults these days don't carry the same significance that they used to uh, in the, in the pre-pandemic situation. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, lenders are under some pressure from the regulators not to make the situation worse, and they know that it's not necessarily going to improve the prospects of getting paid by enforcing. And, and, and there's the practical consideration that courts in a lot of countries are closed, and so there's not much you can do to enforce through a court procedure. Um, the second uh, point I, I wanted to make is that the default issues these days, um, you know, kind of fall into the basket of payment defaults, which are fairly easy to identify. You either pay on time or you don't. Or other uh, event there's default pr provisions where the language that you've negotiated is actually now pretty important. Um, you, you, you may have a, a loan with a, with a material adverse change provision in it. Uh, there could be financial covenants that the borrower no longer meets or may no longer meet, uh, even with the prospect of equity cures. Um, there's reporting covenants, which may not be able to be met if you're not able to prepare reports on time, et cetera. And, and then last, but definitely not least, are cross-default clauses in existing loans, where, yes, this loan may seem fine, but by virtue of a default under another large loan, this loan itself is in default. Um, the third thing that I wanted to say uh, is that uh, it seems in the in the in the place where we are in this crisis, which is at the front end when the, the long-term consequences are not known, that most lenders are looking to um, simply extend out payments and, and enter into forbearance agreements rather than find some kind of long-term final restructuring or uh, waivers of, of uh, provisions that, that the borrower can no longer comply with because they don't really know how, how long that's gonna go. I think with that in mind, we can turn it to the operational panel with, um, with Mark, uh, with, sorry, with Roddy and, and Fola. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Um, <clears throat> so the idea of this um, panel was really to focus on day-to-day -day operational issues uh, and obviously, uh, these impact um, your portfolio companies um, on a daily basis. Um, what we were um, looking to do was really just to highlight some issues that uh, we've seen. I mean, obviously, the, the issues that are coming up um, across a broad spread of different areas, whether it's employment, banking and finance, contractual commitments, tax, disputes, uh, real estate, etc., we're not going to be able to cover all of those uh, today, but we thought that we would um, try to, to pick on a couple of issues and, and talk about those. Um, I think one of the um, key, key things to bear in mind is that, of course, the law in each of our countries doesn't really uh, provide for what has happened and uh, what can happen and, and is not flexible enough to provide solutions. So I think there is an opportunity for all of us uh, as GPs uh, and advisors to be proactive in trying to lobby our different governments to provide solutions to some of these issues, because I think many of those governments are not equipped to be able to react proactively uh, to those issues. So I think by working together, I think we, uh, we can uh, make sure that at least certain solutions can be uh, brought forward to, to help the situation. Um, so I wanted to hand over to my colleague Fola, who's based in, in Lagos. Uh, she was going to touch on some of the uh, employee issues, uh, which is obviously one of the first commercial kind of operational issues which many companies are, are facing. Fola? 
Thank you very much, Rodi. Um, so, given the nature of um, the pandemic we are dealing with, manpower has by the um, evolving events. Um, businesses have that challenge. Um, it's a balancing challenge of ensuring that their critical activities and processes um, remaining in operation in the face of the disruption, whereas there's also the attendant financial burden because some um, employees have automatically become um, redundant. Um, in looking at the issues arising, probably put them in four buckets, business continuity, um, occupational health and safety, um, potential business um, reorganizations, and also data privacy. Um, so given what has happened, a lot of um, businesses have looked at um, um, remote working to the extent that is possible. And given the fact that we have a lockdown in Lagos and Abuja, which are the critical um, business centers in Nigeria, um, I guess even in terms of um, trying to make a choice, I don't think any business has an, um, has an option in those areas, whether they can work remotely um, or, or not. Um, the Nigerian labor framework is flexible enough to encompass um, remote working, so there is very little to be done on the legislative side. I get, again, it's to look at um, your um, contractual arrangements and see that um, there is flexibility um, to, to cover that. But remote working, which has, it appears to have been fully embraced, throws up other issues such as supervision and direction, the ability to meet with customers, and even the ability to deploy the um, technology to provide them the seamless transition to remote working. Uh, employees. Remote working has issues of cybersecurity. It's one wonder whether um, a lot of businesses were able to make this investment in te technology. It is clear from the regulatory side that um, not as much has been done, although a number of regulatory authorities have indicated they are open for business by way of online filings. Um, not all of them have been able to take advantage of that. Um, the next issue um, on employment matters would be the occupational health and safety. Um, Nigerian legislation gives the employer the responsibility for the safety, health, and welfare of, of workers, but the legislation appears to be tilted more to factory workers than the manufacturers. But we have a common law um, duty of care that employers have to the employees in relation to safety and um, well-being. And this um, duty is similar to the duty of care um, in negligence. Um, the International Labor Organization standards of occupational health and safety also applies, and it enshrines that the employees have to be protected from sickness, disease, and injury. So, Given that we have a lockdown, most people are working from home in the first place, but you have those essential services that have been um, excluded. Um, companies, businesses have to look at their processes again and ensure that um, they are compliant with the directives that have been given on either social distancing and all the other health directives and ensure that they actually take steps um, either in relation to employee workplace or relationship with um, customers to protect the employees from safety and health issues. This is the time to, for all companies to look at their um, health and safety policies and make them reflective of the current situation. Another key area, which is business organizations that um, I know that every business owner is thinking of, of right now and is most impactful. We're going into our third week of the lockdown. And even before then, a lot of, um, of the employees were already working from home, depending on what type of organization um, it was. 
So the issues that would come up now are can an employer can an employer terminate an employee as a result of the inability or the impracticality of the employee to be able to carry out work and end the living? Um, can um, salaries be suspended or can they be reduced? Can the employees um, can the employer mandate the employees to take either an unpaid or or paid leave? Um, a number of of the issues um, are not covered, and I don't think any of this um, particular situation we find ourselves in will be covered in either the contractual agreements, the employment contracts, the policies, or the handbook of the companies. So. As a practice step, I would say that um, all employers must engage, must engage with their staff. Um, let them know the what the, the impact of the situation. Um, let them know the impact of the situation, and before any of the decisions are made, um, should engage and socialize the issues. Um, for most of the issues, uh, if they are not already covered, which most likely they will not be covered by the employment agreement. The employer would have to agree um, with the employee because it would be considered as a variation of um, contract. I think the major issue is that if the employer is unable to pay salaries and the employee is unable to carry out work for any particular reason, can that be considered as a frustrating event or would force majeure apply? irrespective of um, its applicability, and I think it has been mentioned in the previous situations, is to look at each issue. Every company and every situation and every job function will be different. Look, look at it, each situation practically and determine to what extent has the pandemic or the lockdown um, impacted of the inability of the um, employee to carry on work. Um, in looking at frustrating events, the courts will expect that the employer and the employee took, take steps to at least remedy the situation before considering that the employment contract is frustrated. Um, the last issue would be on data um, privacy. Um, given that it's, an, it's a pandemic, a health issue, um, employ, employers may need to process um, health information on employees. Um, such health information is considered as sensitive personal data under the Nigerian um, data um, protection regulations and employers have an obligation as to how that information is to be treated. It has to be processed in a compliant manner, stored and secured against any breach and the client and the employees um, consent obtained before it is used, although there are certain circumstances in which um, the employee's consent can be waived. In a nutshell, um, employee issues are going to be um, recurrent. Um, an employer has to be proactive, has to engage, has to take legal counsel um, because no two situations are the um, same same and be really proactive and engage um, its employees. Rodney? Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> we're, we're virtually out of time now, so I'm just going to make uh, one, one final comment, um, which is really about the issue of um, force majeure, uh, which has been mentioned already. Um, th there seems to be a general um, misconception around the use of force majeure that it's uh, that the COVID-19 pandemic is necessarily a force majeure event um, because this is relevant and, and a lot of entrepreneurs think that that means they can start renegotiating leases, their financing arrangements, their contractual arrangements, their supply contracts, etc. Um, as has already been mentioned, um, under uh, common law, um, Force majeure is only relevant if you have a contractual right in your document to force majeure. There's no common law principle of force majeure. So it's uh, an area where I think people believe that they've got much more flexibility than they actually do. So it's important that you check your contracts 
there is an for common law countries there obviously is an alternative in terms of frustration of contract uh, which may well provide an avenue to to take a similar approach um but uh, as Fola said it's one of those situations where you really need to uh, take advice on a case by case basis um i think because we've run out of time i'll close our session there and hand back to jeff thank you I guess I'll add thank you for everybody for your great contribution to a wide range of topics. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, please visit avca-africa.org.